Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Yeah, that'll get the foot tapping or maybe the thumbs on the steering wheel. I like it, Greg. Well done, man. Scott Rintoul, Jamie Dodd, midway point for us here on the turn today. Thanks for joining us, 960-960 or 650-650. If you want to get in on the conversation, and maybe if you want to give me an answer to this question, Jamie, is this weekend's regular season game between Tom Brady and the Bucks and his old team from New England in his old stomping grounds, is it the biggest regular season game in the history of the National Football League, as headlines suggested to me earlier today? No, no, it is not, Scotty. The Patriots don't even have a winning record. They're one and two. They can't be involved. You can't be involved in the biggest game in regular season NFL history if you don't even have a winning record. Come on. I'm with you. But because of the prominence of that organization and the prominence of the guy who leads the Bucks and is the defending champ and has won seven Super Bowls, you understand why it's being sold that way. And when they say biggest regular season game ever, those who are trying to push that narrative, they're talking from an interest standpoint. It's obviously not from a stakes standpoint. We've seen teams that have double-digit wins late into the season going head-to-head, and we call it a possible Super Bowl showdown. Nobody is calling this that. How much interest is there in this game? Maybe you haven't even looked at at the schedule for this coming weekend. I find it hard to believe that people are more interested than most others unless they have a specific rooting interest than this one, though. It's an interesting game. There's no doubt about it that it's interesting, right? And if if you want to call it, you know, the game of the week or, heck, if you even wanted to make the case that it was the, the regular season game of the year, I probably still wouldn't go along with that. But, okay, maybe we can have a conversation there. But, come on, biggest Regular season game of all time, no chance. No chance whatsoever. If this was Tom Brady returning to Foxborough and it's late in the season, you know, and the, the Buccaneers are are 10-2 and two and the Pats are 9-3 and three and both teams look like Super Bowl contenders, okay, sign me up. Maybe we can start getting there. But the, the Pats are nothing. They're 1-2. They're, they're, they're not that good. Like, there's, there's no way you can hype it up like that. No, it's Sunday night football, and it should be. When you look at the matchups this weekend, there aren't a bunch that stick out. It's not like this past. We had some really good matchups in week three. And we usually look ahead to the NFL slate a little bit later in the week. But because of the prominence of this game, people are doing it a little bit earlier. Okay, the Monday Nighter's over. Cool. Let's talk Brady. Let's talk Pats. Let's talk about his return. I get it. And I get the hype. And I'm interested. I'm interested. Even if this wasn't a standalone game, if they had somehow screwed this up and put it head-to-head with a bunch of other games, I'm watching this game. I want to see what the love-in looks like for Brady. I want to see if they turn on him immediately after the snap and they're cheering <laughs> against him and they're rooting on the Pats and it's the Max Jones era taking over from the fan standpoint or whether they're actually cheering him when he has some level of success against his old team. Like, I'm really interested in that storyline. But this doesn't compare to the great Manning versus Brady regular season no. matchups. Like, to me, it's not even close to that. No, I completely agree. It, there, this is you cannot talk about this in the same context that you talk about. You know, fantastic juggernaut Super Bowl contending teams. That, as you said, with Manning and Brady, don't forget there's a real rivalry there as well. So it's not as if that was free of any emotional stakes. There were there were emotional stakes in those games too. So I, I don't I don't see how this can possibly hold a candle to any of those. I will say you make a good point about wondering who the crowd is going to cheer for because. You know, there's a chance that this one turns into a blowout for Tampa Bay. It's not a guarantee by any means, but given what we've seen from the two teams so far, there's certainly a chance. 
And in that scenario, can't you imagine the crowd really kind of ostentatiously cheering for Tom Brady as a way of registering (laughs) their frustration with the current state of the New England Patriots? Like, I wouldn't be surprised if they're in Brady's corner the whole game. Yeah, I can see it. And that's not the result they're going to want at the end. Like, if you're a Pats fan, and I don't think we have a lot of them out there. We have some. There'll be some Pats fans who text in on this and, and give us where they sit going into this game. But if you're a, Pat, a Pats fan, isn't your perfect scenario, hey, the big pregame hype, standing ovation for Tom Brady, everybody showing their love, all of that, and then at some point during the game, Brady throws a touchdown pants, a pass, I should say, not pants, to Gronk. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I don't really want to see Gronk spike his pants with the Gronk spike, but... Who knows? Maybe that's for an off-season video. He's he's a party guy on those cruises. But, yeah, you want to see the Gronk spike, and then you want yeah. your team to get over. You want Mac Jones to lead this new era against Brady and, and the Bucs and send them back to Tampa 2-2, two and two, and you even your record up at that point. Like, that's probably your ideal scenario. Oh, it definitely is for Pats fans. But it's just a case of if they're going to get a sniff of that or not, right? Like, Or if it's going to turn into the Tom Brady show again at Foxborough. I'm cheering for my Pats to win. Brady plays well. Mac Jones wins the game on a two-minute drill, touchdown, or field goal drive. Yep. That's your ideal scenario. And the same listener texted in, hey, the Pats are one and two. Well, so are the Chiefs. So by those standards, the Chiefs stink. I think we can agree there's a different level we evaluate the two teams with right now. We're wondering if the Patriots can get back to relevance as far as challenging for a wild-card spot. The Chiefs' standard is... You're the reigning AFC champions two times over, Super Bowl two years ago. You got to the AFC championship game. You're the you're the standard bearer in the AFC right now. And, and I would also slight, say. Slightly different, you know, metric with which we're measuring these two teams. Yeah, of course there is. But I would also say, yeah, the Chiefs are one and two. That means they also cannot be involved in the biggest regular season game in NFL history by definition, right? Like, yeah, there. I also think the Chiefs are much better than Patriots. But in this conversation of, okay, what's this the biggest game in the regular season ever? The record does matter. And, and what we think of the teams do matter. And come on, the Patriots, again, maybe they get into wild card consideration, but they haven't necessarily looked like that so far. We mentioned last segment, we were talking about whether or not Matthew Kachuk should be the next captain of the Calgary Flames, how much of that is conflated by the fact that he doesn't have a contract beyond this season, storylines that didn't exist a year ago, and someone texted in on that, have to disagree with you want opponents, fans disliking your captain. I will clarify that's not exactly what I said or Jamie was intimating either. I'll clarify that in a second. Texture goes on to say, Sackick, Iserman, Linden, Sedin, Bork, Lidstrom, Doan, Alfred, lengthy list here. I don't think any of these guys were hated by opponents' fans, if anything, respected. Begrudgingly disliked in some cases, like Crosby gets mentioned here. There are a lot of people who are not Sidney Crosby fans, not because they don't think he's a great player, but, hey, man, you heard all, everybody say, ah, Sidney Crosby's a whiner, it's yeah. too much about him. Like, he gets away with stuff. If you're a Flyers fan or you're somebody else that's existed in that division for a while, you might not be the biggest Sidney Crosby fan. And the texture's point is well taken. What I was saying, and if this didn't come across clearly, I will say it again. Matthew Kachuk has certain elements to his personality and his game that some fan bases do want in their captain. Absolutely he does. Yes, he does. And also, yeah, of course you can list captains who are kind of universally respected around the league. Although I would say, you know, Shane Doan is in that list. 
Uh, Shane Doan during his playing days certainly was not universally respected and beloved by opposing uh, fan bases. So I think you can take him off that list. Yeah, you can list captains who fall into that category, but guess what? You can list a lot of other captains that did have a certain amount of animosity, that did get a certain amount of hate from other fan bases. So it's not to say that if you're that type of player, you can't possibly be a captain in the NHL. You don't need to be that type of player, certainly, but I don't think it excludes you from being considered for a captain spot. I'll give you a perfect example, at least in my mind, because this player shares a lot of the same traits, and he won two cups as the captain under Daryl Sutter in L.A., Dustin Brown. Yep. Great example. Perfect example. How many teams, how many opposing fan bases said, ah, I respect that guy? Not a lot. Nope. Nope, he's doing accidentally on perfect stuff. How is the league not reviewing that? Respected how hard he played, came up with some very clutch moments for that team but not universally beloved around the National Hockey League. So that type of captain can work. It doesn't mean every fan base wants that type of captain, but it's one of those, hey, if he's ours, we're pretty good with it. If he's yours, can't stand the guy. Yes, and again, it's. I think the overall lesson, right, is that the captaincy isn't – there's not just one type of player and one formula and one blueprint that can be captain of an NHL team, right? And even from team to team, the role of the captain and the duties they take on in the in the locker room is going to be different, right? So you have to look at the individual situation and, and where the franchise is at, where the player is at, before you say this guy can be captain or he can't be. Henrik Sedin, who was pointed out on that list, is a good example of a player who when he received the captaincy, it was – 50-50s perhaps a little bit strong, but it was in and around there, debatable. Was this the right guy? And as his captaincy went on with the Vancouver Canucks, a lot of people in the Vancouver fan base who weren't so sure about it, they got on board with it. But, Jamie, you know this for a long time, and there are still some of those out there that say, I always thought Ryan Kessler should have been the captain of this team. Yep. 100%, right? Because, and that's interesting in the context of this conversation, because he's much more similar to the Matthew Kachuk mold of player, right? Where he has no problem going out there. He had no problem going out there and agitating, getting under the skin of the other team, trying to annoy the other team's fans, right? And yes, there were absolutely cries in this market to make Ryan Kessler the captain. John in Vancouver says, are you not saying every single fan loved Wendell, as in Clark? John is an ardent Leafs fan. Another good example. There were yes. people who respected Wendell Clark that couldn't stand Wendell Clark. Yes, that there have been a lot of examples of this throughout, you know, NHL history of guys who, yeah, they're captains, but they play on the line a little bit. And other, other teams and other fans don't necessarily love them for it. This text comes in on Matthew Kachuk again. He is a polarizing player. We all know that. He isn't even respected by his own team, not captain material. We don't know that. We don't know yeah. that. I think that goes all way too far. Might there be guys in that dressing room that haven't been down with, with the way he goes about his business in the past or think he does it a little too often? Well, that was one of the rumors that circulated last year after the puck flip by Jake Muzzin that seemed to change everything for Matthew Kachuk last season. And, and he kind of laughed that off in Eric Francis's story. Yeah, you guys look into that too much. I just didn't have a great year. I wasn't consistent enough. There were some high points. There were too many low points. I need to be better. I need to be more consistent is what he said. So, yeah, maybe there are some players that don't want that in their leadership. I'll bet you there's a bunch of other guys that when things are going pretty well for Matthew Kachuk, they are fully on board. And you know this, Scotty. I mean, there could be one moment of frustration with Matthew Kachuk, but that doesn't mean even the players that that may have been upset or frustrated in that moment 
are completely at odds with Matthew Kachuk on a day-to-day basis, right? You, you can have that one moment of frustration with a colleague or a coworker in a really, you know, intense, high-emotion context, but still respect what the guy does and still even look at them as a leader, right? So you can't look at that one incident and say, oh, even his own teammates don't like him. Again, we just don't know what the dynamic is in that room. Well, here's the other part of it. And we this conversation gets too narrow because of the tradition we hold on to with the C on a sweater. It's an important thing. It's something that a lot of players aspire to. And yes, it in many cases that becomes an esteemed member of your franchise for years and decades to come. It's more about a leadership group. Do you have different styles of leadership that can resonate with different players on your team? We just talked about Nathan McKinnon the other day, who outside of this outside of his own market or maybe outside of his own dressing room, don't we all look at Nathan McKinnon and go, dude, that's a captain. Like, that guy's yep. a captain. Nathan McKinnon just went on the 32 Thoughts, the podcast, and said, I love having Gabe Landis-Cog as our captain. I don't want to be the captain. You have to deal with some stuff as the captain that I don't think I'd be great at, quite frankly. So I'm really glad that we have that. And yet we all think Nathan McKinnon would be sensational with a C on his sweater. Yeah, as I said, every situation is different, right? And obviously there are certain responsibilities of being a captain that carry over from team to team. But based on, you know, the other players in the room, the coach, even how the organization looks at it, the role of captain is going to be different in every city. We hear so often that, look, just because you're the captain, that doesn't mean you're the only leader on the team. There's still going to be other important leaders. They might not even have an A on their jersey, right? But they're still going to be really important voices for the team. Nathan McKinnon can be an, a really important leader for the Avalanche without wearing the C on his jersey. For sure. For sure. And that's the case. So look at a guy like Oliver ekman Larson. Will he provide leadership in Vancouver? Yeah. Is he going to have a C on his sweater? No. Not even a question. Bo Horvat's the unequivocal leader. And is that actually going to unburden Oliver ekman Larson to a certain degree, who I'm sure was very proud and will always be proud that he was a captain of that team down in the desert? Did it did it add to difficult times? Did it make it? Maybe. I don't know. Probably. Doesn't mean he doesn't mean he lacks leadership, does it? No, it, it obviously doesn't. Even, you know, our Tommy Panarin said the same thing with the New York Rangers, right? You know what? I don't really think that would be the right fit for me. Not something I'm interested in. You should actually probably, you know, that should increase your opinion of the player, really, rather than decrease it. Because at least they have the self-awareness to look at it and the honesty to say, you know what? I think it would be better for the team if we go in a different direction. Someone texting in, let's not mix up Matthew Kachuk with Evander Kane. Well, those are two entirely different scenarios. Entirely different. I, I I know that's the point that the texter's getting at. And if you missed the latest... With Evander Kane, we mentioned it off the top of the show because Elliot Friedman had this as far as breaking news. There's another investigation for Evander Kane. And this one is in a different vein than the last couple have been. The first one was about the allegations that he had gambled on the NHL, specifically on Sharks games. The allegation was that he had tried to throw games as well. The NHL investigated that thoroughly, found nothing like that had happened. They dismiss those allegations the next one's far more serious they are about sexual and or domestic abuse they come from his estranged wife Kane has filed claims against her in that respect as well with domestic abuse that is still being investigated the latest one from Elliot Friedman today is that Evander Kane is being investigated 
by the NHL for breach of COVID protocols. And if it's gotten to that, because, Jamie, you over the last year, I over the last year, we've all heard rumors about breach of COVID protocols and players being a little laissez-faire with the protocol, being in the bubbles that they've been in and, and the sheltered environments that most of us haven't been in for the past 18 months or so. But they don't go to the investigation level. So if the NHL is investigating that, it's more serious than just a, a simple transgression where someone forgot to wear a mask into an environment. Well, and especially if they're investigating something that happened, you know, six months ago when the season was still going on, right? Like, yeah, they might still look into that if they got wind of it, if it was a simple uh, infraction of some sort. But if, if the moment has passed and any harm that might have come has passed, I'm not sure they're releasing a statement. I'm not sure they're making... Uh, you know, there, it's it's rising to the investigation stage. So it certainly suggests that there was, and again, we don't know, but whether it was a repeated violation or some sort of very, very serious, significant violation, obviously something more than, you know, the run-of-the-mill stuff, which is still not great that you're talking about. It, it seems like it has to be bigger than that. There's been a lot going on in the life of Evander Kane. Remember the big story, I guess it was less than a year ago, but the big story about the bankruptcy yep. and where his contract might go with the Sharks and and why he would declare bankruptcy from a legal standpoint and, and not wanting creditors to be able to touch that. Like, that was a big story last year, and we all wondered, well, how is this going to play, and how is he going to play? And the interesting thing is, with that going on, with everything that we are now seeing was obviously going on in his personal life with a relationship that has been destructive on some level hopefully not as serious as either party alleges i think we hope that for all human beings here jamie but it was obviously a destructive relationship on some level with all of that going on he was arguably that team's best player last season yeah he was really good he was really effective which is wild when you lay it all out everything happening in the life of Evander Kane and everything that we've learned since then that was going on the fact that he was to say nothing of apparently being completely at odds with your teammates in the locker room. Like, that's a difficult enough situation to deal with and still go out and perform as well as he did. To have everything else on top of it, it, it's just, it, it makes the story even weirder for me, right? Because it's not a case of, you know, all these personal problems crept up and then he fell off on the ice. You could kind of understand that. It, it's it's quite striking that he was able to still be successful last year. It certainly is. And we had the suggestion earlier in the inbox This is the Sharks trying to get out of the contract, that if there's a breach of protocol here, maybe the Sharks are trying to get out of the contract. I understand that theory. There's nothing to base that on right now, but I understand people thinking that. Man, they've got a lot on their hands. Is there anything they could do? Well, maybe that – hey, maybe it ends up going that way. Maybe the player ultimately gets suspended if there is a significant breach of protocol here. I'm not sure how this is going to be handled, but, boy, is there a lot of tumult in this person's life. And you can understand from the Sharks' perspective, as the texter says, why they might be going down that road, right, and starting to think, okay, what is the easiest way for us to wash our hands of this situation because there's just so many things happening? I can, I'm can, i sure conversations like that have happened in the Sharks' organization, but we don't know. There's just so little information about this latest investigation. We can't say for sure that it's the start of that process, right? We just don't know. What's the view on Kane and the Sharks on the A's virtually being eliminated 
last night on the Andrew Wiggins situation. There's a lot going on in the Bay Area, not to mention the Giants have the best record in baseball as well. Football is a big topic of conversation. We better head down there. We'll do so next with our good friend Dieter Kurtenbach. He joins us on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Won't get a lot of attention this week, but it might in future weeks. Did you see who's visiting with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Jamie? I sure did. Richard Sherman is down there having a visit. He is, and that's not the only team that has inquired about his services. Sherman was last with the 49ers. They did not extend his contract. They went their mutual ways because of the money involved and other things they had to do on their roster. And he was looking for work in the offseason, wasn't able to come to terms, had a very public incident that was looked into, and Richard Sherman, from what I've read, and actually heard him speak with a guy we bring on the program on a relatively regular basis. I saw an interview he did with Doug Farrar and talked about how he's grown as a person since. Well, there are teams calling. There have been significant secondary issues in places around the NFL. Carolina apparently called. San Francisco apparently called. Tampa Bay also called. He is going to apparently meet with and work out for the Buccaneers if everything goes well, Richard Sherman could be playing in one to two weeks for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Yeah. And no surprise, I think, that either player or team would look at that as an interesting fit, right? That we know the Buccaneers have injury issues in their secondary. And if you're Richard Sherman at this stage of your career, you got to think the chance to go play with Tom Brady, go play with a team you know is going to be a Super Bowl contender, and that has a legitimate need for you, that's pretty enticing. Here's the other thing. Will you be surprised whatsoever if we find out, let's say this comes to fruition and he joins the Bucks. Will you be surprised whatsoever if we find out Brady placed a phone call and he was one of the guys who recruited him? Sorry, what was that, Scotty? Will you be surprised whatsoever if we find out that Brady was part of recruiting Richard Sherman? No. Let's say, uh, assuming this comes to fruition, no, because we've not seen this. Not at all. And the weight that that phone call carries, not only to the player on the other end of it, but to the organization as well. We saw this with Antonio Brown last year. Yep. If Brady vouches for a guy, if Brady goes to bat for a guy, there's a good chance that guy's going to end up in Tampa Bay, right? You know, assuming they can do, they they can show enough in the workout and whatever else. But yeah, that vote counts for an awful lot down there in Tampa, understandably so. The thought of Sherman and Brady being together a few years ago when each was a protagonist with the Patriots and the Seahawks and that you mad bro meme yep. that came out, like it was unthinkable, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely it was. Richard Sherman to Brady when they win a Super Bowl together, says this texter, quote, you glad, bro. <laughs> Is that going to be the next meme? I love it. I love it. That's a good one. Well, and here's the thing about Richard Sherman. He's a bright guy, and you're either a fan of him or you're not. I happen to be on the fan of him side of things. He's always played the part really well of being out there. He's been willing to speak to anybody speak his mind because he knows he can hang with anybody in any conversation and at times does he put on a bit of a character to draw more media attention sure he does but he knows what he's doing when he does it yes it's 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 all calculated for richard sherman right he embraces that side of things yeah i enjoy it as well i think it's super super entertaining and i hope i hope he does find his way back into the nfl and on a i hope a high profile team like tampa as well Someone else said, what about the Seahawks secondary? Yeah, they could use some help too. Yep. And if I'm not mistaken, they did talk to Richard Sherman. Seahawks fans, those of you who are 
you know, 12s out there, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought I saw a report in the last few weeks where there was at least a phone call placed, or maybe it was a little bit earlier in the offseason. I know uh, our, our friend Michael Sean Dugar at The Athletic, who covers the Seahawks and we talk to on a fairly re- regular basis, he has said, you know, if those conversations did happen, they're not happening anymore, and that's not in the cards, is basically what, what Dugar has reported. So maybe there was a quick check-in, but it doesn't look like there's going to be a Richard Sherman and Seahawks reunion coming up. The other thing about the box, and obviously this is led by Brady, but they've got a bunch of guys like this on the roster. It seems to be... And, and you can determine as a fan what you think should be a level of acceptance, but it seems to be an acceptance of a bunch of different personalities, and that's fine. We all go about our lives in different ways, but when we show up here on this field, we all know how to work. The veteran guys that they've brought in, that seems to be the common thread between them. And again, you have to think that if you're, if Brady is vouching for you and bringing to bring you in, even though there might be questions about your personality or whatever, then you got to think you're going to feel really under pressure to, okay, hey, look, Tom Brady got me in here. He vouched for me. He spoke up for me. I got to work hard to show that I deserve that. Well, and let's get real. This is part of the reason that this Brady envy exists among top-tier quarterbacks around the league. It's part of the Aaron Rodgers envy. It's part of the Russell Wilson envy. They see this going on in Tampa Bay. They see how much power that Brady wields in that organization, and they feel like they should wield similar power with their own. Yeah, it, it would be great if, if uh, I mean, I'm sure Aaron Rodgers, obviously, Russell Wilson, go around the league, guys look at this and say, man, I wish when I called the general manager and said, hey, let's bring this guy in, that it got results as consistently and as quickly as it does for Tom Brady. Well, and in smaller doses, it has. You can't tell me that Randall Cobb, I mean, the, the general manager basically admitted that, yeah, we got Randall Cobb because Aaron Rodgers wanted yeah. him back. That's, that's why yeah. we brought him back here. But look, at least in part of the song and dance that Aaron Rodgers had to go through to to eke out a victory on Randall Cobb, right? Tom Brady doesn't have to do that. No. And look, maybe if you were the 49ers and you were calling about Aaron Rodgers in the offseason or some of those other teams like Denver that did, maybe that was part of your sales job as well. (laughs) Look, man, if you come here, you're going to have more say than apparently you have had in Green Bay. That had to be part of the pitch to Tom Brady when the Bucs were trying to sign him up. Well, or maybe it was just specifically, hey, we'll, we'll sign Randall Cobb. Will that do it for you? Is, who, do you have another best friend in the NFL that you'd like us to bring along? We can make room for the roster, <laughs> on the roster for them. We're awaiting connection with Dieter Kurtenbach. We teased him before the break, has joined this program fairly regularly over its existence. There is so much to talk to him about going on in the Bay Area right now. Like Basically, when he comes on, I will give him yep. topic roulette and let him choose from the top. <laughs> I will. Jamie, I, I teased it before the break. We talked about the Evander Kane situation with the Sharks, which is infinitely interesting for a bunch of different reasons. You've got what's going on in baseball down there, where on one side they've got the San Francisco Giants, the biggest surprise in the pleasant category in MLB this season with what they've done with their record, and on the other side an Oakland A's team that just seems to have run out of gas and just got a dagger put into it by the Seattle Mariners over the course of the past eight or nine days. Then you've got what's going on with the 49ers, and it's not a full-on quarterback controversy yet, but there are a lot of questions about the way they lost and Jimmy Garoppolo and when Trey Lance needs to come into that situation. And then there's the Andrew Wiggins controversy that is probably bigger than anything from a talking point right now in the Bay Area if you wake up today and you turn on sports radio there. 
Well, that's one of the biggest stories across the NBA, right? And really across the sports world south of the border. And it's funny because the Warriors would be a pretty interesting story going into the NBA season, even without this, right? They have Clay Thompson back, and there's always the question of, you know, when you have Steph Curry still in his prime, still doing what he's capable of doing, is that team going to find a way to be legit title contenders again? And then all of a sudden... Very unexpectedly, you know, Andrew Wiggins completely shifts the conversation around that team. You're right. That's a major, major talking point, not just in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, really. Again, everywhere south of the border right now. And he faced the media yesterday, and he answered a lot of difficult questions, basically with, hey, this is private. It's personal. That's where I'm going to go about it. And there were questions posed to him, and Dieter was at that press conference, and questions like, you're going to lose a lot of money if you do this. And he said, well, that's for me to worry about, not you, which is very fair. Like, that's a yep. fair answer to that question. Correct. You agree, whether you agree with his decision or not, it's only his to lose. It shouldn't matter to any of us if Andrew Wiggins loses money. The general person looks at that and goes, well, that would be a lot of motivation for me. I'm surprised that it isn't for you but Andrew Wiggins has more money than he'll ever be able to spend and hopefully he's done a very good job of protecting that money but his situation is so different like if Kyrie Irving chooses not to get vaccinated with the Brooklyn Nets and foregoes the season or retires or whatever Kyrie Irving might do because Kyrie Irving has made some decisions that have caught a lot of people by surprise over the course of his career well Kyrie Irving is a superstar in the NBA who has won a title and has done a lot of things, and his place in the game is seemingly entrenched. Bradley Beal in Washington came out yesterday and, and to me, had what is an ignorant comment, but I understand why some people raise the question. But, like, what's Washington? Like, who is the person on Washington that's going to go and, and talk to Bradley Beal? No. And change no, his it mind? No, like exist. He, he holds the star power there. Andrew Wiggins isn't in that situation. Andrew Wiggins is much further down the list. And while it is his personal decision, and I will defend his right to make that personal decision, often in a hierarchy of a team environment, those at the top curry a lot of favor. Pardon the pun here when we're talking about guys like <laughs> Steph Curry and Clay Thompson and with what the team is going to do. Andrew Wiggins only recently established stability at this point of his NBA career. And he did it with this team, and he's talked about how much he loves that environment, and this threatens to put some type of rift in it with that team. Well, and the interesting thing, too, and and Donovan Bennett talked about this a little bit when we had him on earlier in the show, Scotty, is that, you know, that team and that environment since Steve Kerr has taken over, it's been kind of synonymous with having a good culture, right? And I know there's been blips here or there, right, with Draymond Green and Kevin Durant getting into it, but we still look at that as, okay, you've got... Steph Curry, who's incredibly well-respected. You've got Draymond Draymond Green, who's a very vocal, emotional leader, but also willing to do whatever it takes to help the team win, right? Not a guy who has to go out there and put up a ton of points and have the ball in his hands to help the team be successful. He's a that kind of quintessential role player. And then you have Steve Kerr, right, who, again, has been famous for getting buy-in and getting the team to get along and build chemistry and build culture there. I mean, this is the biggest challenge to that environment now because a player of it, they're paying a lot of money. And while he might not be one of the top three most important players on the team, he's still a player that they need to be good if they're going to have success, if they're going to get to their where they want to go as a team. And all of a sudden, he might have to miss half the schedule for the Golden State Warriors. So it, it's fascinating that it's happening to me for that team specifically because it's really going to challenge the identity they've built since Steph Curry and Steve Kerr have been there. 
Well, and the NBA is going about this a little differently than some of the other leagues. Like the NFL has come out from the beginning, and we covered this a lot, and the NHL has followed suit. The NFL has said, it's your choice. It absolutely is. But if you don't choose what we would prefer you to choose, life's going to be pretty tough. It's going to be pretty yeah. tough for you. Might cost you some money. Might cost your teammates some money. Might cost your opposition some money. Here are the rules. That's what they are. The NHL has done something very similarly. And the NHL, as it you know, contrasts and compares itself to the NBA, we often do that with these two leagues. The NHL, for example, has not to this point sought a national interest exemption for players crossing the border. Like a Tyler Bertuzzi, for example, who has publicly said, nope, I'm not going to do it. That's going to cost him nine games and some money. He won't be able to play in Canada. And the NHL, unlike the NBA, didn't go to the Canadian government and say, well, look, we have a few players who probably aren't going to get vaccinated. Can we get a national interest exemption so that they could travel in? They didn't do that. The NBA did, and they're going to be granted that national interest exemption, just like teams in Major League Baseball have been. But the NHL said, no, we're going to tow a hard line here. The NBA, because it has been a very star-laden league, has not gone down that road as of yet. And it's interesting because from the NHL's perspective, I do think it's maybe a bit of a chicken and an egg situation, right? Because there were so few unvaccinated players in the NHL, and especially so few high-profile players, really players of note. I mean, Tyler Bertuzzi is the most high-profile guy we're talking about at this point. Because that's the situation, it made it easier for the NHL not to seek a national interest exemption, right? To say, hey, listen, you guys are the last holdouts. You're on your own here. If it was, you know... 85% or even only 90% of the league was vaccinated. That might've been a bit more difficult for the NHL to do, but I think because they, the border is such a bigger issue for the NHL than it is for the NBA with only the one team in Canada, the, the NHL players knew like, if I don't get vaccinated, there's at least a chance that it's really going to wreck up my season. If you're an NBA player and you're not in New York or San Francisco, right, then you kind of look at it and say, okay, I missed the game in Toronto. I can live with that. That's fine. It's not as much of a punishment. No, it's not. This is a big topic conversation. We'll get right to it with Dieter Kurtenbach. Bay Area News Group joins us now. You were at the press conference yesterday, Dieter. I know you were one of the the inquiring minds lobbing questions at Andrew Wiggins. Where does this currently sit right now with his team, his teammates, and obviously the fan base? Well, the fan base is livid, as well they should be. This is a player who uh, is a 35-plus minute guy. He's a guy who's going to start. He's a guy who's going to close. And he's willingly taking himself out of the fray. And and taking it a step back, I mean, it's not even just the, the 41 home games, which as of right now he won't even be allowed in the building for. It's also practices, and if you're not available for, I don't know, half of the game, uh, half of your practices, maybe more, then are you really available at all? And this is just, again, it's not as if we're in a world where players were opting out because COVID was spreading unabated and we didn't have vaccines. This is somebody opting out effectively on the basis of turning down the thing that gets us out of the pandemic. So, uh, the fans around here, and we're one of the most vaccinated areas in the United States, perhaps the most vaccinated area in the United States. It's uh, Fans are livid. His teammates put on a, a good face. Uh, they kind of had their PR spiels ready to rumble. But Steph Curry uh, had some nice veiled passive-aggressive language for Andrew Wiggins. And with Wiggins, uh, it doesn't sound like he's coming off his stance at all. And that is a big problem. I don't think the Warriors really – 
I don't think the Warriors really comprehended how strongly Wiggins stood on this situation and that he would be willing to turn down tens of millions of dollars and torpedo an entire team season on this stance. I thought that they, I, I think they think he would have eventually seen the light. I don't think that's the case after listening to him talk yesterday. And as Andrew Wiggins pointed out, certainly from a financial point of view, he's the one who loses here, and that's for him to deal with. And I know you were at that press conference. Can you see this leading to a situation? Because not every area is like the Bay Area where you're not going to be able to play home games. Most of them aren't. Could you see this leading to a situation where Andrew Wiggins gets traded? I think that everyone would like that right now because it seems like the cleanest solution. But I, I would like to acknowledge that this is a guy who had very little trade value before he was willing to torpedo an entire team season, right? Like what, what he's doing to the Warriors, yes, there is a more appreciable problem here, right? Like he, it, there's a very clear line that he's drawn in the sand as it pertains to vaccinations. But every other team is going to see a guy who just hasn't been a team player. This is a guy who just doesn't want to do what's best for the team. And so they're going to view him in that light now, too. And, again, I don't think he had much trade value. He's one of the worst contracts in the NBA for the output that he provides. He's a good player, but he's no, by no means a great player, and he's making great money. I, if they're selling him, they're selling him for next to nothing. In a trade, uh, people talking about Ben Simmons, why the hell would Philadelphia want Andrew Wiggins for Ben Simmons? Are you going to toss in everything else involved in that? Uh, I just I, I have a hard time seeing anybody – just lining up a, a fair and decent offer for one Andrew Wiggins right now because no one was doing that before all this went down. And it's interesting. We were talking just before we got you on the line, Dieter. You know, I find it fascinating that it's happening with the Golden State Warriors specifically because so much has been talked about. And, you know, it's them promoting it to a certain extent about the culture mm -hmm. that they've built, that Steve Kerr has built there. And then all of a sudden there's this massive challenge to that. And it also happens, you know, Steph Curry's not getting any younger, and I know that they really want to squeeze out as many, you know, high-level competitive years as they have left with Steph Curry, and this is a major challenge to both of those things. And that's why we heard Steph Curry in a very diplomatic but pretty angry way say what he said yesterday in terms of it's not ideal, you hope he sees the light, you hope he comes to the right side. All of these things, not so subtle far more pointed than Steph Curry would usually be about anything pertaining to something that's uh, thorny, right? Like Steph Curry is a very good businessman in that regard. He speaks his mind on many issues, but this, this one's particularly prickly and he didn't mind getting into the fray just a smidge. As this continues on, I imagine he's going to have more and more to say because he was barely able to hold in some anger by the end of that press conference. You, you give him 10 minutes of run up and the final five were pretty saucy. Uh, anytime you're doing anything to basically hurt Steph Curry, you're in the wrong, just in general, <laughs> with the Golden State Warriors, with anybody. Like, if Steph Curry thinks that you're being a jerk, you're being a jerk. And that's it is crazy. I think it's a great point. Uh, the Warriors have built themselves up for culture and all these things. And while that necessarily doesn't, you know, stand, uh, stand up to scrutiny more often than not, this is, this is a bizarre challenge to it. It's one that they didn't think would reach this point i would like to note that andrew wiggins has about 48 hours to get a johnson and johnson vaccine in his arm as to avoid any actual problems um because of the the new rules in san francisco for employees which he pertains as go into effect october 13th he'll have two weeks post johnson and johnson so wednesday is the big day for him uh nothing has actually happened yet 
but again, just listening to him yesterday, that's more energy and emotion than I've heard from Andrew Wiggins in my entire life. It's more than he shows on the court most nights. Uh, He seems to be charged up about this. It's about the only thing he seems to be charged up about. So I don't imagine anything's going to change on Wednesday. And then the Warriors have a big, fat problem on their hands. Dieter Kurtenbach joining us here today on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. There is a problem on the hands of the San Jose Sharks as well. We're wondering what the path forward is with Andrew Wiggins and the Golden State Warriors. What is the path forward with Evander Kane and the San Jose Sharks? Uh, there, there isn't there isn't one. Everybody on the team wants him out. Um, they can find reason to do that, or they'll just not have him around. Uh, he won't be around for training camp. He probably won't be around for the start of the regular season. Uh, if he's fully exonerated, I don't even think they'd really want to bring him back at, at that juncture. It's just one thing after another. Uh, the Sharks' stance right now is very clear. This is addition by subtraction. Evander Kane will not be around this team unless there is some massive battle with the PA and, and things like that. I don't think they can trade him. I mean, <laughs> much like Wiggins, I don't think anyone's out there being like, oh, Evander Kane's contract and all of the baggage that comes with it. That sounds great. He'll get us a Vander Kane. He might be a decent enough player, but uh, that's that's a hot potato to, to take at this juncture. Uh, I just think that he sits on the sidelines. Uh, maybe he's you know <laughs> sent down to the AHL through waivers. I, I just I can't see him uh, taking another shift in a Sharks uniform because nobody on the team is, is willing to go to bat for him. Long term, then Dieter, what's the play here, right? Because as you said, that contract is an issue. Three, yep. it's one thing to have to have a player, you know, okay, it's your last year of your deal. Things aren't working here. Sit out, and then we'll go our separate ways. But there's three more totally. years left after this one. I, I think that they pray that Gary Bettman installs another amnesty clause. I mean, it, it's it's bad. <laughs> it's really bad. I mean, by by the way, the Sharks would gladly use the amnesty clause about four or five times with their current roster. So uh, I don't know. It, it's 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 quite a hot mess. We'll get some more clarity, but for what we know right now, uh, the players on the San Jose Sharks don't want anything to do with the Vander Kane. That's been the case for quite a while, long before any of this sort of came to the forefront. And this was all the excuse they needed to say he's not allowed back in our dressing room. And uh, I don't expect them to change their minds on that either, because why would you? I mean, the guy, the guy's toxic. The guy's just straight up toxic. So they don't they don't want that around the team. And Boy, the Sharks, you know, <laughs> I guess they could use, you know, 20-something goals and, you know, 10 assists. He doesn't really pass the puck. But um, it's you know, they, 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 they could sure use some offensive output. But, they, again, they think it's addition by subtraction, just not having them around. And who knows? Who knows if that's the case or not. I think they're going to be pretty bad either way. Maybe they want to call the San Francisco Giants and get some offensive output. That has not been a problem. Not much has for the Giants this year. Best team in baseball. And then across the bay, did you have the Seattle Mariners being the team to deliver the final blow to the Oakland season this year? Well, the Mariners would go 162-0 and if they played the Oakland A's every day. It's unbelievable <laughs> what they're doing. Um, uh, that's not it's not a great sign. I Listen, I, I like the Mariners. I think that they have a nice amount of spunk. Uh, they have a couple of decent starters. You know, they're young. They're exciting. They're going to be a team to watch in the years to come. Uh, but, no, I didn't see, I didn't see what was it, 10, 11 straight losses to one team to effectively end the season. I didn't see that from the A's. Uh, who, who put up a decent fight, but they just didn't have they just didn't have the firepower. This is a team that didn't invest, and uh, <laughs> that lack of investment came back to bite them in the butt. It seems like that's the, the story we tell every year, but they, they kind of ran out of capital here this season, and uh, it's going to be a big, dramatic offseason, I think, for the Oakland Athletics. If, uh, if you're looking for a really talented first baseman, a really talented third baseman, or a really talented center fielder, maybe some starting pitchers, 
think you should call up uh, David Forrest and Billy Bean because they're probably going to have to sell some more guys. As mentioned, the Giants, best record in baseball. They've been fantastic this year. Nobody expected this coming. The only problem is it's not an even year. They win World Series in even years, and I don't know I don't know what the postseason holds for the Giants, but try to put into perspective what an accomplishment it is just to win this division, given, the, given that the Dodgers exist in this and what we thought of the Padres. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely exceptional. Um, it is, I'm struggling. I'm struggling to fully explain how it happened. Uh, this is not a team that was supposed to be in this position. If they were going to be good, they were going to be of the 83-84 win variety good, right? I mean, this is a team that has it was admittedly in a rebuild. Uh, they were getting better. They were rebuilding up as opposed to tearing down, but they were still rebuilding. And this was a season where you expected Brandon Crawford and Buster Posey and Brandon Belt, those guys to all just fade away, right? And their contracts are up and they can just fade away into the black. And, uh, you know, we say goodbye on you know, October 3rd in the final game of the season. Maybe they get a wild card game, maybe not, but it was all going to be sort of ceremonial the same way they did it with Bruce Bochy uh, two seasons ago. Uh, And instead, all those guys are absolutely all-star caliber players and have been fantastic. It will be interesting, very interesting to see what the Giants do, obviously, in this final week because they have a two-game cushion, which is great, but they have to hold off the Dodgers, and that's uh, easier said than done (laughs) for sure. But Brandon Belt broke his thumb on a a bunt attempt in Colorado, and he had been one of the best players in baseball since the All-Star break. I mean, inarguably one of the best first basemen. Uh, Without him sort of anchoring the lineup in the middle, they have plenty of guys to replace them, but it's just a steady, clean-eyed bat that they had in the middle of the lineup. Without that, it's a bit of adversity. It's going to be very interesting to see how they respond to that. But just given what they've done all year, man, don't bet against them. You've already lost too much money. Just, Just stick this one out. Yeah, they've given the Heisman to the Dodgers every single time the Dodgers have taken a run. We'll see if they can do it over this last week. We've run out of time. I'll have to save Trey Lance usage for a future conversation, Dieter. Absolutely. Well, that's about an hour conversation, so I'm glad that we're going to push it for later. (laughs) Beautiful. Thank you very much for your time today. Have a great one. Anytime. You too. That is Dieter Kurtenbach. Man, that interview certainly could have extended much longer. We hit the high notes as best we could, and I know that the topics weren't necessarily that, but the the stories of most interest in the Bay Area right now, there's a lot going on there. It's almost one of those, Jamie, what do we always say on Mondays? Could we spread the content out a little bit just so, you know, we can spread this over four or five days? Like, do we have to have it all rushing in at once? Boy, that must be what it feels like in that market right now. Yeah, every day right now, right, with the the Giants doing what they're doing. And, you know, the A's probably falling out of the conversation a little bit at this point because of where they sit in the standings. But the Giants, the Niners, you know, are always going to dominate talk there. And they've got eh, maybe it's not a quarterback controversy, but it's trending in that direction potentially. And then everything happening with Andrew Wiggins. It's just a wild time down there in the Bay Area. Yeah, it certainly is. We're going to turn things over content choice-wise to those who host Hockey Central 960. That's coming up next on the eastern side of the Rockies. We will talk to you tomorrow. We'll dive back into what happened in Abbotsford last night as well. Harm Dial will join us in the final hour of the program. It's Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Whose stock rose the most for you last night? One of the questions we will pose during the final hour of the program today, it's Scott Rintoul, it is Jamie Dodd, and for one final quarter of our program here today, Harm Dahl of The Athletic will join us as well. Following the Canucks' 4-2 win over the Calgary Flames, or do we call it a reasonable facsimile or just a facsimile? 
Look, last night they were the wearing they were wearing they were wearing Calgary Flames sweaters. So <laughs> you're you're the Calgary Flames for the night. The players playing the part of the Calgary Flames last night. Maybe they were more Abbotsford Flames, Abbotsford Heat. Yes, last night. Yep. It was kind of a tribute to the connection uh, that the Calgary has with Abbotsford, right? Hey, we, our AHL team used to play there. We'll send an AHL team tonight. Now, I wasn't in the building, and not all of the pregame festivities were available online as we watched the stream. Was there a tribute video for the Abbotsford Heat? Was there a tribute video for the Abbotsford Heat <laughs> last night at the Abbotsford <laughs> Entertainment Center? I don't believe that there was. I wasn't there either, but I don't think there was. Missed opportunity. Missed opportunity. Or maybe they're waiting until the actual Stockton Heat come to town and the Abbotsford Canucks will pay tribute to them then. Or maybe not. No. I think um, I think the memory of the Abbotsford Heat is fading fast. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to see many tributes this year. You don't anticipate a Sarah McLaughlin video or like <laughs> anything like that and some memories of Playfair, do you remember Jim Playfair? Yes, that was with oh, the Abbotsford yeah. Heat. Do you oh, remember when he yeah. lost it and had one of the more memorable coaching meltdowns? Legendary. I mean, that is really that's that moment is the reason to remember the Abbotsford Heat, right? For anything other than if unless you were involved in the organization in some capacity, that's always going to be the moment from Abbotsford Heat history that lives on. I am giving you material here. I am giving you material. Jamie and I are creating this for you on the fly. Have some fun with this Abbotsford Canucks content team. Do something. You can there have you some fun. We've already given you the soundtrack, the Sarah McLaughlin, the Playfair video. Like, you do all of that when Stockton comes to town this year. Yes, absolutely. Seize it. Seize, seize the moment. Make Do something fun. I, you know, NHL teams and NBA teams, like all the pro sports teams now, their social channels, you know, they like to get out there and have a little bit of fun. But I feel like you can push the envelope even more at the AHL level, right? Like, you can try some really bizarre and wacky stuff at the AHL level if that's your gig. So go for it. Let's see. Yeah, it's not quite the IHL from back no. in the day. You no. the IHL? Oh, yeah. And specifically Vegas. Yes. The Wranglers, some yep. of the stuff they did and the different jerseys they'd have every single year. Yeah, like that's one of those. Are, hey, we just saw the Danbury Trashers documentary hit Netflix and some of the things that they did with that organization. Maybe you don't want to bring all of that, but maybe an element of it. I'll tell you, yeah. I, I will say this having watched the documentary, and probably a bunch of our listeners would agree with it. Hey, the way they went about it with having a, a bunch of different goons in the lineup at times, that sort of thing. Certainly not everybody's recipe for what they want to watch on a hockey rink, but just the idea of let's bring an element of professional wrestling to this, not that bad. Well, and also let's find a way to connect with the community that we're in, right? And that's going to be different for every community. The way that they connected with Danbury and because of who the owner was, that's going to be a lot different than how a hockey team can connect with the community in Abbotsford and the Fraser Valley, but just... It, it was so striking in that documentary. That's really what they set out to do, right? We're going to find a way to make all of these people who, who are coming to these games passionate Danbury Thrashers fans who feel a real connection to the team. And I just think keeping that idea in mind, okay, what's the best way to go about and do that in our situation? More than any of the specifics, I think that's the lesson that you should take if you're running a hockey team. Jeff from Mission says, let's be honest, they were the Abbotsford lukewarm. At the best of times. <laughs> That's fair, Jeff. This one from Rocket and Langley. I played with Jimmy Playfer up in Fort St. James. I'll tell you, the guy was the most mellow guy ever that I ever <laughs> met. So when I saw him going off like that, it was kind of funny, says Rocket and Langley. 
That's great. I love the context there. Not the uh, doesn't isn't that always the way though? The really the quiet guy who finally snaps once in his life. That's always going to be the biggest uh, the biggest explosion that you see. Yeah, maybe if it's been building for a lot of years and then something just snaps that straw. That's I mean, usually it's the Aussie Gian type of guy where you're like, yeah, or John Tortorella. We we're used to this. It's going to happen at some point. It's been about four games. It's it's probably time now. But you're right. There's that uh, there's that one person. Trying to think who that would be in the National Hockey League right now, like if Barry Trotz lost it completely, yeah, would that, be that the would guy? be pretty surprising. That would be John Cooper has to be up there, right? Mm, that it, I could see, Cooper but to lose it at, not, at, at that level, though, he's not super laid back. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, no, Travis Green would be a guy who could lose it in a heartbeat. Greg, Greg just suggested Travis. Yeah, Green. No, Travis, team. Travis Green wouldn't surprise me that much. No. I could see Travis Green losing it. Man, not to play fair levels, but I could see him losing it. It's Sky Rental, it's Jamie Dodd. I posed the question. I'm interested in your answer as well. Which Canucks player last night? And they're all on different scales here. Not every single guy who played last night is vying for a legitimate shot on the team. And there are a bunch of guys who were in the lineup last night that really had nothing to lose other than their health as far as a roster spot is concerned. They might be jockeying for a position or which line they're on. But we know a lot of those guys in that lineup, they're going to be there on opening night, health permitting for the Vancouver Canucks. But who took a big step up stock-wise for you last night? 650-650, it's the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Jamie, whose stock went up for you last night? I got to think if we're just looking at last night. Now, there are some some NHL names, NHL locks that impressed me. But, again, we already know they're going to be on the NHL team, so they didn't really have to improve their stock. But if we're... Leaving those guys out, we can get into that a little bit more throughout the course of this hour, Scotty. Leaving those guys out, I would look at Jonah Gadjevich, right? And, and I said earlier in the show, coming into training camp, coming into this season, I wouldn't have said that Gadjevich was even on the roster bubble, right? I would have had him a tier below that where the expectation is go to Abbotsford, fight for opportunities, offensive opportunities with the Abbotsford Canucks, show what you can do, and then maybe you work yourself in throughout the course of the season to the point where, you know, if there is a rash of injuries, you're in line for a call-up. Or going into next year, you've positioned yourself to be on the roster bubble. He's surpassed that expectation for me. He's shown more that, okay, I still don't think he's going to figure into the NHL picture for the Canucks, But he's making the coaching staff think about it. So I was really impressed with his game last night, especially the setup on the goal to chase Waters. And he's a a guy, again, looking at last night, clearly stock pointing in the right direction. He's never going to be confused with the fastest skater in the league. And that's been the question the whole time. Is he going to cross the minimum threshold needed? to play in the National Hockey League from a skating standpoint because he's always had for a nose for the net. He doesn't shy away from contact. None of that. He's got that innate ability, and he's had it at every level so far. Get to the right place, right time. I don't care if they're between three and five feet out or not. Jonah Gadjevich has the nose for the net, and not every player ever develops that. You're either born with it in some cases or you're not. Can he skate well enough? And the skating, it's improved. Whether it's good enough, I don't know. But it's most certainly improved. He's certainly a guy whose stock rose. I think most people felt pretty good about Mikey DiPietro. But did his stock go up even more last night for you? I would say that's kind of what I expected from Mikey DiPietro, right? So when I say I wouldn't necessarily say his stock rose, it's not me criticizing his performance. But 
I had pretty high expectations for Mikey DiPietro, and he turned in a good performance. He looked really sharp, but it's not a performance I look at and say, okay, I kind of have to take stock of where I am on Mikey DiPietro and maybe raise my opinion of him. See, I think Greg, the goalie guru, yes, saw the stock in Mikey DiPietro go up significantly last night, if I'm not mistaken, Greg. Would you, would, would you agree with my assessment of your assessment? I don't know if stock going up can be considered for a preseason game. You want to see him do that in actual action. But it was a good game. It was a very positive sign. Uh, as someone who didn't get to watch a lot of Di Pietro the last couple of years, uh, he looked good. He looked like he had a really solid foundation to his game. You can tell he's been working with Ian Clark. But it's not taking away from that explosiveness that he has. I thought he was really good yesterday. All right, that's high praise from Greg. That's high praise from Greg because he doesn't dole out that type of praise very often. And and I think that's the context I looked at this in, Jamie, not as far as a long-term prospect in the organization. Everybody's very high from that standpoint. This guy hasn't played much. Yeah. He just hasn't played much hockey. We always know that he's a battler. We know that he's the type of goaltender who's going to make the the remarkable save because of his athleticism and because of how he fights to the very last moment. But... I would say, and again, I'm not coming this from coming at this from a, a technical standpoint like Greg is. If there's been a knock on Di Pietro at times, it's been with being positionally sound enough and being technically sound enough to make some of the easier saves at times. Right. It's he has the desperation, he has the athleticism and the and the battle and all of that to make these spectacular saves. But one, sure, are you making the easy saves? You should be. And is your positioning putting yourself into a putting yourself into a spot? where you have to make more of those really spectacular saves, right? And could you actually make things a lot easier on yourself if you weren't doing that? And it's good to hear from, our, again, our, our in-house goalie guru that, yeah, that, that effort and that, and that uh, you know, the attempts to kind of refine his game are paying dividends for Mikey DiPietro. Jason, the killer goalie, texts in Tucker Pullman. He was solid defensively, even showed some offensive spark when he circled the Flames net in the third, centered the puck. Also, the whole team looked a lot quicker than the past few seasons. And part of that was due to the competition. I don't yes. want to diminish what Tucker Pullman or anyone else did last night. It's not their fault that Calgary brought largely an AHL team, a minor league team. And the Canucks did the same type of thing down in Spokane the night before. It's not their fault. So the speed discrepancy, some of that may have had to do with the fact that they were playing against that team from Calgary. But I agree that Tucker Pullman looked pretty good. And for his first audition in front of somewhat home fans in the lower mainland. I agree that his stock would have gone up last night. The question is, at what depth is he going to be asked to swim this year? And how much does the Hammonick situation complicate that and the decision that might come down this week, might not? I don't know. I agree with Jason the Killer goalie. Tucker Pullman impressed me, definitely stood out. His mobility was better than I had anticipated. And as Jason said, the offensive capabilities were also better than I was thinking Tucker Pullman would demonstrate. Yes, the caveats of the competition, of it's so early in preseason, all of that. But Tucker Pullman himself, and also the pairing of Oliver Ekman-Larsen. Oliver Ekman-Larsen looked good last night as well. That duo looked good together. And, you know, we talked about it yesterday on the show, Scotty. Look, you can't look at what they did last night and say, okay, that's it. They're going to be the shutdown second pairing for the Canucks this year. But you wanted to see them at least get off on the right foot. They did that. You do wonder, though, if Tucker Pullman is playing really well and Travis Hamanick is not available for the Canucks, is it going to be 
at least enticing for the coaching staff to bump Pullman up, move him out of that spot with Oliver ekman Larson, and have him play along Quinn Hughes. Because the way Pullman looked last night, he looked like he could keep up in that role. Sure, but this will be partly, partly about how do you dole out those minutes. Yep. Right? There's, there's so many minutes to go around, and how do you do it? And, and that'll be part of the question with Quinn Hughes as well. Do you get him a bunch of his minutes on special teams? Power play, obviously. He's not, a, he's not a penalty killer out there. And so can you depress his partner's minutes because he's not necessarily a special teams player, depending on who that player is? Like, Quinn Hughes doesn't have to have all the exact same minutes as the guy who's taken a turn for the most part regularly. There might be the ability to mix and match, and who knows? Depending on what Travis Hamannick decides here, if, if that's what this ultimately comes down to, who do they bring in? And and do you bring in somebody who's able to spell it more often than not than, than Luke Shen? Yeah. And I think the mix and match point is a good one, though, right? Because that's probably what it's what's going to be the case is that, again, if Travis Hamnick's not available, that there's going to be certain guys who start the game with Quinn Hughes, right? But then if the team falls behind and you need to chase the game a little bit, you know, Tyler Myers might get that spot alongside Quinn Hughes for the rest of the game, right? They're going to have to adjust on, to fly, on the fly to how they line up their defensive pairings. And the question about who potentially replaces Travis Hamannick, doesn't it seem like the best bet to replace Hamannick, again, assuming he's not available, would be on the waiver wire when teams are making their final roster cuts? But that's leaving it really late in the process, and there's no certainty you're going to find a player you like at that spot either. No, there really isn't. There really isn't, and so it might be a little bit of, all right, we're going to start in this spot and see who might be available along the way, and are we able to make a, a trade? Like it's, it, The disparity between the left side and the certainty you've got on the left side or the comfort level you have on the left side of this defense compared to the right side, night and yeah. day might be a little bit strong, yeah. Jamie, but you know Jack Rathbone, someone texted in, hey, Jack Rathbone's 100% ready. There are going to be growing pains this year for Jack Rathbone. That is going to happen. It looks great right now, the first two games. He's clearly distanced himself from Ulevi in particular, and he's he's certainly ahead of Brad Hunt. Like That's going to be your guy on opening night, barring something completely unforeseen. Do you think they wish that he might play on the right side instead of the oh, left side yes. right now? Oh, yes. If there was like a procedure that you could get to switch your handedness, the Canucks would be interested in that for Jack Rathbone. That would solve a lot of their problems, not just for this year, Scotty, but down the road for the future of the team. That would solve a lot of their problems. Or if Brad Hunt was a right side defenseman as well. And you went, OK, we didn't anticipate Travis Hamannick not being here, which, by the way, we still don't know. We're waiting on that. I'm not going to speculate which way that's going to go. But in the hypothetical where Travis Hamannick isn't an option for you this year and you went, okay, we can piece this together between Brad Hunt and Luke Shen and maybe one guy plays for a couple games than the other. Like, okay, you feel a little, little better about that as opposed to I don't know how many times we can go to Luke Shen and, and how much of an, another plan we need as a part of this. And Brad Hunt, I believe, he's a left-handed shot, but I believe he has played on the right side in the past. But we know Travis Green is not a fan of that, right? And you just look at how the pairings are likely to set up. I'm not sure you're going to put Jack Rathbone and Brad Hunt playing on his offside out there together, right? So if you're not going to do that, who would he play on the right side with? It's probably just a much cleaner fit to move Shen into the lineup and try to find the right spot to play Luke Shen. But 
again, as we've said many times this week and, and really going into the season, Scotty, Luke Shen is great as your seventh defenseman, but if he's playing a regular shift every night for you, that's not a great spot to be in. Yeah, and maybe Hunt, because he's played on the right side at times, and he's a lefty, it's his more natural side, maybe you can do that for a little while. You might not be able to solve your problem right away. Generally, there is that flood to the waivers at the start of the season, and, and part of the reason teams feel comfortable putting players on there that you went, oh, I don't know if they could lose a guy, is because everybody's doing it at the exact yes. same time. Well, the Canucks might find themselves in that place that they were for different reasons last year where they were plucking every Maple Leaf available off the waiver wire. <laughs> yeah, actually, why haven't we done that already? Are there any right-side defensemen that the Leafs are about to put on <laughs> on waivers? That could be the solution here. But I, I exactly what you said, Scotty, right? This is the time of the year where – some players that people are surprised are on waivers end up on waivers because it's so crowded. The Canucks maybe, maybe could benefit a little bit this year. Jake in the Ridge says, we've seen D-men play on their offside in the past and succeed just based on their skating in a third-pair role. You could shelter them. Why couldn't Rathbone try the right side just based on how smooth his skating is? It's not that he can't try it. This is more about preference than anything else. And with Jack Rathbone in particular, you're trying to create confidence in him. It's not that he couldn't give that a whirl, Jamie, but is that where you want to start him as he breaks his way into the National Hockey League? Well, and again, first of all, it's a young player who, as you say, you're trying to build confidence, and that's a, it's an awkward spot to transition him. We know Travis Green doesn't love to do it, but again, just look at, okay, let's say you move Jack Rathbone to the right side. Who is he playing with, right? You're probably not going to put him and Quinn Hughes together. You're probably not going to make him the partner for Oliver ekman Larson on a shutdown pairing. Are you going to move Brad Hunt into the lineup then? And then you have Brad Hunt and Jack Rathbone, one of them who's playing off their on their offhand. It's not as easy as, well, move one of the guys to the right side. Just you look at the roles they're going to ask certain players to play. Moving Rathbone to the right side in some ways would just open up a hole that needs to be filled on the left side then, right? Fair. Fair, and we'll focus on the defense right now. I do want to circle back to where you started. I'm going to ask Harm Dial about this next segment as well. I thought that Gadjevich line was pretty good overall last night. He sets up that yep. goal. Chase Waters scores. He's a good story. He's a good story. This is a guy who doesn't have an NHL contract right now. Did you see the tweet from his GM from Saskatoon? I did. Today? Yeah. That was great. That was great. Uh, they've counted this guy out at every level. He'll never make it for this reason or another. Good for him. He scores in his first preseason game. I love stories like that. We just know there's not a spot for him this year with the Vancouver Canucks. I hope it works out for him, whether it's here or whether it's somewhere else. The other guy in that line was Will Lockwood. And Will Lockwood continues to have people watch him play a shift, do a little nodding, add a couple of check marks. I don't know if he's on the opening night roster, Jamie, but given the injury situation, he's he isn't hurting his case. No, he's not hurting his case at all by bringing that kind of energy consistently. And I, I think it's it hasn't been perfect for Will Lockwood, but he has he's he's shot himself up the power rankings for that fourth line mix, right? And it really has become almost completely open on that fourth line, right? It's gone from the one spot that we thought would be available to now with the uncertainty around Tyler Mott's status, the uncertainty around Brandon Sutter. You could look at that entire fourth line as basically wide open, and Will Lockwood has, he's put himself into consideration, right? He might be one of the favorites at this point to make that line on opening night. It was one of those nights where you can heap praise, on, praise I should say, on virtually everyone. Who got to the top of Harm Dial's stock watch? Find out next right here on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd.
You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. I'm here, buddy. Don't you worry. The record's still intact, Greg. Record's still intact. I had to finish chewing something. I'm not one of those guys <laughs> who rolls onto the air and continues to eat. <laughs> Many of my colleagues in the past are like, yeah, whatever. I had to eat. I'm just going to continue chewing. That's not how I roll, Jamie. That's not how I roll. And so Greg was getting in my ear like, hey, Jamie, maybe you should consider jumping in here. And in my head, I was like, you know what? <laughs> I'll, I'll, see, I'll let this song roll a little bit more, see if Scotty shows up. I'm good with I'm not ready to. I'm not ready to jump in just yet. It's a good song. I'm good with the song. Just letting it roll out. If you want to just keep playing that. Maybe some of the listeners thought that I, there you go. Text comes in right now. Just as I was about to say it from the Church of Pedersen. Sing it, Scott. Maybe Church Pedersen <laughs> thought I was weighing my decision on whether that's where I make the debut of singing along and Church of Pedersen makes a donation. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I was not even, like, thinking there was an issue until Greg got in my ear and said, where's Scotty? I was like, oh, right, this song has been playing for a while. What's going on here? I guess I should be I should be starting to think about this. Yeah, it was a little bit late in the break sequence for me to take a bite of food, but I needed the sustenance to get through the segment. That's where we're at today, guys. That's where we're you gotta at. Do, you got to do what you got to do, Scotty. I understand. Got, got to finish the race, man. You got to finish the race at the end of the day. And that's what I had to do. It's, you know, when people are doing marathons, they take gels. They take stingers, whatever it is that they happen to eat. Today, I just need a little snack. See, it's easier for me because you're the one who talks first coming out of commercials. So I have an extra little buffer, right, where I can finish my chewing. And I know, okay, Scotty, like, yeah, the music's coming on. And we've heard, you know, welcome back to Ritual and Sermon. But I still have a little bit of extra time that you don't have. So I, I, I appreciate that you're in a tough situation, Scotty. Harm Dial is going to join us here in just a second. We'll continue to talk some Canucks hockey. I do want to devote just a little bit more attention to what I think you and I are planning our days around. Like this happens from time to time where you're willing to plan your day around a sporting event. It doesn't happen midweek that often. I'm planning my day around that Jays game, aren't you? I absolutely am, Scotty. Absolutely. I'm fired up for it. I really am. And I know that it might go the wrong way, and I don't have a terrible amount of faith. You heard me at the beginning of this month, even before Hyunjin Ryu was great against the Yankees. I've had concerns about his pitching for a while now, and I really hope that this extended break translates well today and that he goes out there and he dials up a gym and the Jays get off to the right right point of this series or on the right foot in this series. But I'm nervous, and I like that because it means the game matters. Yep, and man, it is, oh boy, it is really, really nerve-wracking to have Ryu going tonight, especially against that Yankees lineup, but that's what it is. And again, as you said, okay, the fact that you're nervous, at least it means there's real stakes here. At least it means the games actually matter at this time of year. The math will tell you differently, but just from a gut point of view and from a logic point of view, they lose this game tonight, they basically have to win every game from here on out. They'd have to That's win five straight. Say. That's what it yeah. feels like, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you never know what can happen elsewhere. But the expectation to give yourself a shot and not be hoping for a miracle from the other team's results is win five of these last six and two or three specifically against the Yankees. Yeah, I don't want to have to. Like, I'm going to cheer for the Orioles to win these next three games anyway, but I don't want to have to rely on that. No, I don't want to have to rely don't. on the Baltimore Orioles to get it done against the Boston Red Sox. I don't want to have to rely on that as a fan. That's a very, very bad spot to be in as a fan. Anytime that you find yourself relying on the Baltimore Orioles, as Orioles fans will gladly tell you, not a spot you want to be. 
Let's talk a little Vancouver Canucks hockey here, as promised. He of the Athletic and Canucks Conversation. Harm Dial joins us here today on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. How are you today, Harm? Doing very well, guys. How are you? We are very well also. Thank you very much for asking. We're talking about a game that has a whole lot of gravity to it tonight. Not so much last night in Abbotsford, though those who are participating and are vying for a spot on the team or certainly a leap up the organizational depth chart, I'm sure, would argue with us. Whose stock went up the most for you last night? Whether that means stock in trying to make the NHL roster, vault up the organizational depth chart, as I just mentioned, or maybe find a particular spot in the lineup. For me, I think it was Jack Rathbone. And I think a lot of people looked at his first preseason game against the Kraken on Sunday, and it was great offensively, right? He had the goal, he had the assist, he was comfortable manning the power play. But my my takeaway there was, for Rathbone, the coaching staff already knows what he can do offensively. So it's great that he showed those attributes. My thought process after that first game was great. I think at this point now, Rathbone needs to win trust more than he needs to score goals. And I think that's where last night's performance, it wasn't as dynamic, it wasn't as flashy, but I think it made the stronger statement in, in showcasing his potential NHL readiness where he battled extremely hard and and, and right from the outset, um, you, know, you know, the Flames had, uh, I think, a pretty big physical lineup. And especially at the start, I think Brett Ritchie was being uh, was was causing Rathbun a little bit of fits. But Rathbun just kept battling, and, and he recovered well defensively. He was good with a stick, and um, he he almost had that like Troy Stetcher type of attitude, where it's like I'm undersized, but I'm just going to work my tail off and get the puck back anyway. And so. I think he 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 was really scrappy away from the puck, which I think is uh, what he needs to show to win an NHL job. And he was strong on his feet. I think he handled defensive zone duress like a well-seasoned pro. Um, he stripped Dylan Dubé of the puck behind the net. Um, he never really lost a, a puck battle outright. Um, I mean, there was even in the second period he dumped uh, Brett Ritchie, who's six foot four, two hundred twenty pounds on the ice with an assertive check. So. I mean, Raffle is never going to be someone who is going to consistently break up plays on the cycle, but he needs to at least show that he can excel in contain mode. And, and what he showed last night was, I think, some of his best defensive work that I've seen um, that I've seen in a really long time. And uh, when you couple that with the confidence that he showed as a uh, as a puck mover, with uh, again how well he was handling forechecking pressure and his decision making and uh, the and understanding the puck management of when to make the simple play versus when to really push the pace of things. Um, I think this was just an excellent two way showing for Rathbone. And and again, like I think just proving the defensive side of um, his game uh, really really helped raise his stock. Who is the best defensive partner for him to bring out the best in his game? I, I really like the idea of, um, and we'll see obviously what happens with with, with Hamannik if he potentially rejoins the team and, and how things could look. Um, but I, you know, but in an ideal world, I would love to see Rathbone in a spot where he could play alongside Luke Shen. And um, with Shen, we obviously saw when Hughes was coming up um, at the tail end of the eighteen nineteen season. Um, when they played a little bit together, and, and Shen was just able to be that steady, stay-at-home presence who 
um, would free up his offensive partner to pinch, be aggressive offensively, and he'd just be able to take care of things in his own end and and, and complement his offensive partner by being assertive defensively, being able to break up the cycle, being strong in front of the net. And so when I look at Rathbone, what was interesting when he had his cameo down the stretch was he was paired with Tyler Myers. And I think there's a decent chance that depending on how the right side shakes up, that that could end up being Rathbone's partner in the, at the end. Um, and they were fine together. But the one thing I noticed is both guys play a pretty similar style where they both like to jump up in the rush. They both like to carry the puck. They both like to um, pinch and, and just like to make things happen with the puck. And I think what I noticed when Rathbun and Myers kind of played together towards the end of last season was Rathbun had to be a little bit more reserved and calculated just because Myers, um, like you can't, it was, you could tell that Rathbun was hesitant to really um, express himself offensively and, and really take the shackles off freedom wise, because he had a partner who was also jumping up in the play. And so he had to be a little bit uh, more, um, more cognizant of defensive positioning. And so, I mean, sure. I mean, I still think Rathlon Myers could work, but I think in an ideal world, Rathlon would be able to play with um, a defensive minded partner who would be able to free Rathlon up to um, just be aggressive and free flowing offensively. And Harmon, there was a moment in that game last night, I think it was in the third period, where Jack Rathbone was rushing the puck up the ice. He was the first man up for the Canucks. Tyler Myers jumped up to join them, so they were leading the rush. And then play immediately got turned the other way, and the uh, the Canucks had two forwards back defending the Flames rush. I really enjoyed it as a fan, but I do wonder if that's exactly what Travis Green wants to see from his third pairing on a regular basis. It, it will be interesting, though, to see, depending on the availability of Travis Hamanick, how they juggle the defense pairings that I think a lot of us expected to see coming into training camp and coming in to the season, just just based on what they have to work with at hand right now, assuming that, you know, if Hamanick isn't available and they don't go out and add anyone else, because with Tyler Myers, okay, maybe you bump him up to play with Quinn Hughes, but a lot of what you said about the fit between Myers and Rathbone would apply to Quinn Hughes as well. Is there an obvious solution that you see to compensate for the potential absence of Travis Hamanick? I don't see one right now, to be completely honest with you. I think I agree with you in the sense that, and I think the coaching staff is of a similar mindset where I don't think they'd like to pair Hughes and Myers together just because I think they have concerns about both players defensively. And so I, I think especially when you look at Hughes being paired with uh, Tana from day one, a defensively oriented partner. And then Hughes being paired with Hamannick Lassie, another, another defensively oriented stay at home type partner. I think they really look at Hughes' skill set and they want someone who can be a steadier stay at home guy. So I, I don't think that would be Myers. Um, at least he wouldn't be one of the first options that comes to mind. And so when you kind of think about the alternative options, then it comes down to is it is it either going to be Tucker Pullman or is it going to be Luke Shen, who I'd assume uh, would draw into the lineup if uh, if Hamnick is unavailable. And that's where I think you'd have to wonder about, you'd have to ask who would you want playing next to OEL in a matchup pair? Because I think that's going to be like that, that OEL pair is going to match up against the other team's best players. And so, you know, I think they really like the idea of playing Pullman with OEL. I think again, 
They look at Pullman's foot speed, and they think that it can help OEL. And Pullman also, over his last couple of years in Winnipeg, has had that matchup, matchup experience playing against the other team's best lines. Whereas if you look at someone like Tyler Myers, Canucks use him a lot at 5-on-5. Five five. They haven't really used Myers a ton in a matchup role. So um, to that extent, you know, I wonder if they go perhaps Hughes-Shen, um, uh, OEL-Pullman, and then Rathbone-Myers. Uh, and then, of course, we all know with, uh, with how the coaching staff um, kind of deploys someone like Myers, you might take line rushes on the third pair, but just because of all the different... Um, in-game situations usually creeps up into into top four territory, logging 20-plus minutes a night anyway. And you talk about how there's a very good bet that the coaching staff wants to keep the OEL and Tucker Pullman pairing together to start the year. It was their first chance to take the ice in Canucks jerseys last night in a preseason game. And, and keeping in mind all of the caveats that, yeah, it was their first game of the preseason, the Calgary Flames roster was not that impressive. What did you make of the debut of the OEL-Tucker Pullman pairing? I thought they were general, generally pretty solid. Um, it, it, again, I think the big test is going to come when they have to defend the, the top lines in the NHL. But I thought uh, for a first time playing together that they had pretty good chemistry and understanding. Like in, in Pullman's situation, uh, understanding how to support Ekman Larson because we saw, I think, OEL um, pretty pretty free in terms of how he was playing, uh, there were, you know, there was one sequence, for example, where he kind of carried the puck up, chipped it in, and was the first man in on the forecheck, right? And that's just the sort of thing that he didn't get the freedom to do a whole lot in Arizona. And I think that uh, Pullman had a pretty decent understanding of when OEL goes, no, just knowing how to support him and being in the right position and being able to cover ground and uh, so I thought those two fared pretty decently well. I liked OEL's work. Um, I, I thought he was pretty decent on power play. And uh, he obviously had uh, a big assist. And, um, you know, I thought I thought for, for a first impression, and again, as you kind of mentioned, the caveat of it is preseason against an undermanned flame squad, I thought they looked pretty good. And he kept the tote board in the right spot. We were talking earlier, Louis Erickson and Dylan Genther, they had three points combined, and Connor Garland and OEL had three points combined. So the trade's a wash right now, right? Yeah, and, and yeah. it's going to be, I'm sure throughout <laughs> the season, it'll be a really tight race between Connor Garland and Louis Erickson. Maybe it will. Really you just close. never know. <laughs> really close. Harm Dial of The Athletic joining us here today. If Brandon Sutter and Tyler Mott are not available for the start of the season. We know who the first nine forwards would be. Who are the three next forwards right now for you that would make this team an opening night, if no Sutter, if no Mott? Yeah, so on the left with left wing, I think Phil, Phil DiGiuseppe has really really separated himself from the pack through camp, through preseason. I think with this combination of size, speed, the disruptive ability on the forecheck, and um, just him being a monster along the boards and, and being able to win so many puck battles, he just seems to fit the identity of a Travis Green player. And I think as well, on Sunday, he got a crack on the penalty kill, which I think is really important because uh, with uh, with the options that they have in the bottom six, they're going to need at least one of their fourth-line wings to kill penalties. So uh, Di Giuseppe would, I think, uh, be an option there. Um after that, it, it becomes interesting where, 
you know, in the right wing, I look at someone like Will Lockwood, and he's had a really good camp so far. And it, it just comes down to, I think, uh, again, who's going to kill for you, especially without Sutter and Mott. Um, can you afford to have, whether it's an Alex Chason or a Will Lockwood in the lineup, both guys don't really kill penalties. I mean, Lockwood did last year for Utica, but he hasn't done it at the NHL level. So that's where... Um, you know, I'm still kind of wrapping my head around it now. I think the fact that Chason got a look pretty high up in the lineup uh, with Horvat and Pearson, you know, I, I personally haven't been very impressed with him in, in camp. I don't think he stood out, but to me, Chason, I think, would kind of fit the MO of he's he's been a journeyman and he's very experienced, so I could see why Green and the coaching staff would see the allure in him. So maybe it's a chase on, maybe it's a Lockwood. And then down the middle, this is where, I mean, Justin Dowling got, uh, got a look there last night. And so I wonder about his chances. I think, um, you know, I don't think he's particularly stood out through camp, but um, I think he's been decent in terms of he's pretty shifty. Um, I think he's typically been in the right spots from a two-way perspective. So um yeah, I mean, those are just some of the names that uh, that immediately come to mind when thinking about the last few kind of wing spots. What are the chances Jonah Gadjevich plays NHL games this year? You know, he's looked a lot faster. And, and I initially was in the camp coming into this year where I honestly didn't even think he had a realistic shot. But he's impressed me, to be quite honest with you. The fact that he hasn't yet gotten a look um, higher up in the lineup, though, would suggest that he still has a ways to go and being a real contender for an NHL job. Like, if you look at, like, Chason's a real contender for, for, for a spot. He's on a PTO, and he got that cushy look next to Horvath and Pearson. Uh, he's got uh, power play one opportunities. Uh, you look at uh, even Zach McEwen. He uh, started camp with Horvath and Pearson, and Gadget just hasn't, you know, whether it's been the second unit power play, whether it's been... Um, a spot five on five higher up the lineup. He hasn't gotten um, a chance up the lineup and, or in a more prominent role. And I think that matters through camp and preseason because when you look at, for instance, whether it's camp scrimmages or um, preseason action, with the way the lines are matched, someone like Adjovich, he's showing really well, but he's typically doing it against um, inferior competition. Like he's not against Calgary the other night. That line was really good with Gadjevich and Lockwood and and, uh, and Waters. Issue was um, they weren't really against high-end NHL competition. So if you're the coaching staff, I'm just working working my way backwards. Like if, I, if I'm Travis Green and I'm legitimately intrigued by Gadjevich um, and I want to see his potential at the NHL level, I'd be I'd be giving him a look uh, up the lineup or at least on the second unit power play. So. I still think he's got a ways to go for that. And I think the other kind of issue, again, is Gadgets doesn't kill penalties. And, and there is still a little bit of a question mark with respect to his defensive play. Um, so as much as I like what he's shown at camp, I, th- I still think he needs to show more. And he has time on, the side, uh, time on the side. There's a lot of preseason action left. Um, but definitely, he'll... Um, He's going to need to continue to do what he's done. I think definitely, though, he's, he's come into camp and he's been leaner. He's definitely looked a lot faster and been a lot more disruptive. So uh, I'm curious to see how he uh, looks over the course of uh, over, over the course of the rest of the preseason. But 
I still think he's got a ways to go to really prove himself as a real challenger for an NHL spot. Harmon, we've talked a lot about the players who have improved their stock so far at training camp outside of Ole Levy, who's gotten a, a lot of publicity and a lot of uh, attention put on him so far. Is there a guy you look at who has seen his stock uh, decrease or fall significantly so far? Yeah, I think uh, I think a couple come to mind in terms of Matthew Highmore and Zach McEwen. And, and the, the one thing I always keep in mind is like training camp performances always need to be graded on a curve, right? Like the veterans with secure jobs are usually just going through the motions at half speed. It's really only those with an incentive to perform well that are kind of giving it their all. And so uh, when you look at the players that um, that often stand out and are the best performers at camp, um, like this time around, you think about it, like Giuseppe stood out, Lockwood stood out. Um, it's usually those fringe players who need to need to prove something. So the point I'm trying to make is if you're trying to make the team as a fringe player, it's kind of expected to a certain extent that you should be standing out. And that's why it's kind of been a bit disappointing in, in the case of both Highmore and McEwen uh, to see that, uh, that they haven't, that they haven't stood out. I mean, in Highmore's case, he hasn't looked bad, but he was uh, pretty quiet through training camp, which I think is the sort of environment where when you look at, his speed and his battle level and the physical attributes that he has, um, you'd be hoping that he's bringing the type of impact that someone like Will Lockwood would, would with uh, similar attributes. And the other thing, again, with Di Giuseppe showing that he can kill penalties on Sunday, uh, that was one element of Highmore's game where you looked at its PK utility and you thought, okay, maybe that gives him an edge. And so I still think he's got a, sh- uh, I still think he's got a pretty decent shot at making the 23-man roster. But coming into camp, I thought he was, I, I thought he had the inside track on that everyday left wing spot on the fourth line. And I think he's, I, I think he's loosened that grip. And, and, um, you know, I think it, that, that, uh, that inside track is kind of slipping away to G, D Giuseppe. Um, and then McEwen as well. It's, um, it's, you, you talk about players, you, you expect them to stand out at camp. I mean, just 14 months ago, in the bubble uh, playoffs camp uh, in July, McEwen was one of the best performers. He had like four goals in, in four of those uh, training camp scrimmages. And so that just goes to show you again that he, the expectation is you want that type of performance. And he had that big uh, opportunity next to Corvette and Pearson to um, begin camp. And I, you just haven't seen it with McEwen yet. Um, you can tell he's working hard on all of his shifts, but um, he just, at this stage doesn't seem quick enough to disrupt plays to, to cause havoc on the forecheck. And um, I just struggle to see right now, I think McEwen needs to show an identity or role or about as a bottom six piece, because right now he's just a big body, right? He's not fast enough to retrieve pucks. Um, he has, he's not skilled enough to produce offensively with consistency and there's no defensive value with his game in terms of the PK uh, side of things as well. So it's like, when you look at other other contenders for some of these fourth line jobs, um, it's tough to look at McEwen right now and, and think that he's done enough to really uh, stand out and 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 earn, and earn a spot as one of the as one of the top twelve forwards right now. So um, the pressure is definitely on uh, for both McEwen and Heimel over the rest of the preseason to uh, to to be more impactful and, and show the coaching staff something. Best part is when you say McEwen, we package it and pretend you're talking about Craig and we send it to him as if you're talking about him instead of Zach. Hey, Harm, 
you raised your stock once again here today. Appreciate it, my man. Keep up the great work, work at The Athletic, and really appreciate you taking the time here today. Thanks, guys. That is Harm Dial. Joins us on a fairly frequent basis here, talking Canucks. Canucks with an off day today. They'll get back at it tomorrow. Next preseason game goes Friday in Calgary. I'm guessing a different-looking Flames lineup than we saw last night in Abbotsford. Jamie, one last note. You and I looking forward to that Jays game. I know not everybody's a Jays fan, but Kevin Biggio back yes. on the active roster, so he's an option today for Charlie Montoyo and those Toronto Blue Jays. He's been gone for quite some time. Yeah, not a guy who's going to move the needle. You don't expect for the Jays in a big way down the final six games here. But, hey, versatile player gives Charlie Montoyo some options off the bench. You know who's going to move the needle next? It's Bick Nazar and Lena Sategian. They are coming up on Sportsnet today. Josh Elliott Wolf did a fine job producing the program today. Our thanks to him. Big ups to Greg Ballack back at Mission Control, even though I made him sweat before this last segment. Jamie, great stuff from you again. We'll reconvene tomorrow morning. Tim McAuliffe will be a part of those proceedings. Hope you'll join us at that time. Have yourself a great Tuesday. Sportsnet Today comes your way next from the home of Canucks Hockey, Sportsnet 650.